We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for November 30th, 2017, the pass-through edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson joins me in the D.C. studio. Howdy, John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Howdy. And you were back. Where were you last week? Both of you and Emily were gone. I was away. John was officiating at a wedding, weren't you? Or maybe you don't want to talk about that. Um, Too late. I, uh, yes, I was officiating <laughs> a wedding. No, I don't. I don't mind talking about it. Yes. I just thought that was such a lovely idea. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it was actually a great, uh, among other things, the wonder and joy of the of the wedding was. Um, it's a heck of a writing assignment to have to sit down and like be intentional about marriage and the ceremony and what marriage is about and all that. So it was a nice. Uh, and what better time to do that than now? Hmm. That, of course, that other voice not officiating a wedding ceremony, although she'd be great. And also with her legal degree, she probably is entitled to do it. Emily Bazelon of The New York Times Magazine. I am not entitled to officiate at anyone's wedding without one of those insta licenses. You but you passed the bar. Yeah, I don't think that entitles you. All right. On this week's GabFest, the Republican tax bill is marching relentlessly toward passage. Is it just as bad as it seems? Or is it worse than it seems? Those are the two choices. Then, an attempt to embarrass the Washington Post backfires. Is James O'Keefe and his project at Veritas dangerous or just absurd? Then, the most important digital privacy case perhaps ever arrives at the Supreme Court. 
Emily will break it down for us. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And remember, Bostonians and those near Boston, we have a political GabFest conundrum show live next week at the Wilbur Theater. There are just a few <laughs> tickets left. Oh, my God. <laughs> Worth oh only my a God. little whimper. Yeah. The sound well, the closer we get, <clears throat> the, I don't know. <laughs> I, I was trying to okay. like so many people in Washington right now I was trying to uh, come up with a post hoc justification for that lame behavior and I could not come up with one in any case we have a GabFest live at the Wilbur Theater on Wednesday December 6th and tickets are at slate.com slash live and of course they might be giants are going to be joining us for that show it is going to be super duper fun so if you have a chance to make it, please, please come. For There's a couple, some just great conundrums that have been sent. So here's one, which I'm looking forward to. Which fictional character would you most want to be friends with if he or she were plopped into real life 2017? That's a conundrum we could discuss. That's I great. love that. Yeah. yeah yes. I like that one too. So slate.com slash live for tickets. Hope to see you there next week. The tax bill is well on its way to becoming law, having cleared Senate committee on a party line vote. The Senate version of the bill is rolling on freshly laid asphalt toward passage. A couple of senders will be bought off with tweaks to help uh, pass through businesses. The owners of pass through businesses get a better deal. A couple of others will be bought off with some mumbled promises about health care. There'll be couple of others bought off with some preposterous chicanery with tax triggers around deficit worries. Lisa Murkowski will be bought off with a, a, a promise to open the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to drilling. Everyone is going to end up voting for this. So, Emily, first of all, have you turned yourself into a pass-through business? I, I probably will. It seems like it will be in my interest to do so. Mm -hmm. But no, I have not already done so. But I think the question notes the chicanery of this bill, which creates all kinds of work for tax lawyers and new dodges and feints, which is, of course, the opposite of what tax reform should do, along with, and to me, this is the central part of it, just this breathtaking move toward increasing inequality in the United States, which I just find to be unfathomable. I don't understand why we are letting this happen. John, well, first of all, just on the politics. Is there anything that you see at this moment that endangers passage of this bill? No, I don't I don't think so. I think the people will get uh, what they need and it'll get tweaked. And, and given the gimmicks and, and spin that's already been allowed and that everybody's already signed up for, including those who are who have problems with the bill, they've already bought into a lot of things that are verifiably either not true or a lot less certain than they've said they are. And that's you do that in legislation. They can just go a little further down the road for, by it, believing in something, you know. Or professing uh, to believe. In by something. professing to believe in something, they'll get there. Um, right. If you already believe two plus two is five, then you yeah, can believe two plus two is six. That's right. They've uh, taken this to a new level here, particularly because if you look just on the issue of the debt and deficit, this is the, the Republican Party that's passing this has spent the last – Many, 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 many years when they talk about these issues, the central point is that they don't want to add overwhelmingly to the debt and deficit because they think it will um, slow economic growth. And they are basically ignoring all of that that they have said before. Emily, this bill began as a promise of tax reform. 
Is this tax reform? It's tax change. It rearranges the winners and losers from the tax code. But if you think of tax reform as being about simplifying, then no, it's not. By the standards that they set for this bill when it came out, that it fails. So it was supposed to simplify. It's not going to simplify. It's going to make things much more complicated. It's going to make the IRS bigger because, and I think this makes sense to me as it was explained, the, the only way you can get the revenue that you need because it's not going to come from the growth as much as the as the, they're promising that it will. The way you need to get the revenue is if the IRS is watching whether people are following the rules here, which means you're going to need more people at the IRS, which is an institution that conservatives want to get, you know, shrink or get rid of. So and that great tax reform would get rid of. But this isn't reform in that sense. And as a middle class tax cut, it's not it's not that either because of the sunset provisions in the Senate and also on balance where when you look at the energy of the plan, one thing that has never been in doubt is that the, that the corporate tax rate is going to um, get cut significantly. What has been very much in doubt and has shifted over the course of selling this bill is that the middle class, that everybody in the middle class will get a tax cut. That's the thing that's that's fuzzy and movable. It's kind of a two two-piece middle-class tax cut. There's the direct money you'll get from uh, when you fill out your form. But then there's this um, secondary benefit they, that, that the proponents argue will come from jobs and investment uh, and in- increase in wages, which if it comes, and we should discuss that uh, idea um, and, the, and the opposition to it, it's not going to come for quite a while, whereas the corporate tax cut will start paying dividends right away. As it were, I, I, so basically, one of the problems I have with this whole segment is that I am so angry, and so in order for me to get to a reasonable conversation, I just now need to express my anger. So I'm just going to do ahead. that. Okay, this bill is an abomination. It is a curse on the country. It is a stupid, destructive piece of legislation to massively benefit the rich, to weaken the economy in the long term, to punish blue states in a vindictive way that will hurt teachers, graduate students, parents, kids, the poor. It is exactly the opposite of what Trump promised. It's exactly the opposite of what the populists, the Bannons of the world said they wanted to do. It's a monstrous giveaway to the rich who get estate tax breaks that they don't deserve, shouldn't have, because estate tax should be high. These breaks for pass-through corporations that will benefit, again, the very rich mostly huge payoffs from lower corporate taxes, which will not go to investment, but will instead line the pockets of who? Yeah, the rich, the people who own shares and companies that will benefit from that. Every possible reward is going to the rich. 62% of the benefits of this bill go to the top 1% of the country, 62% of it. You have actual harm to households making less than $75,000. It is deficit financed so that we are basically giving the spinach to the future. It's a tax on our children. And it is taking money out of the economy at a prosperous time, at a time when we should lower the deficit. We're raising the deficit, leaving us less room for stimulus, less room to grow an economy if we run into trouble later in the future, because we will have driven up our deficit and driven up interest rates, making it harder for us to rebound from a future recession. It's going to force up health care premiums. It's going to take 13 million people off of health insurance. So we're giving this massive gift to rich people who have already harvested the lion's share of economic growth over the past 20 years for no benefit to the country, the country that will have to forcibly be forced to cut government benefits to people who need it and who will bear the brunt of this in the future. It is, you know, as John pointed out, it violates the very principles that Republicans have been preaching for generation about controlling the deficit. 
And it doesn't fucking have to be this way. There, it's perfectly possible to convene a panel of economists or panel of politicians who can come up with a cut to the corporate tax rate and a middle class tax cut that doesn't do this. And they chose not to. And it's among the most depressing and dishonest pieces of work I've seen in Washington. And I've seen a lot of shit in Washington over the past couple of years. This is even worse than the fucking health care bills. I'm just depressed and angry and really enraged about it there we let go. me just um so i'm done now. on that on the final point about th- there could have been another way so the business roundtable and um like one other i can't remember pro business group basically said take us down to 25 percent. so the 20 percent number is comes from president trump it's not based on any magical thing but it has taken on a magical proportion there's some discussion uh this week about increasing it in the senate mostly to try to get a tiny bit of money to make the the child tax credit refundable or do other things that might slightly increase the benefit on the middle class level. The what's one thing that strikes me as really extraordinary is part of the power uh, of the president's or the argument the president puts forward is look at how great the market is doing. And this bill is, you know, uh, clearly to the extent that CEOs, Bloomberg had a piece this week in which they interviewed lots of CEOs and they found basically two classes of CEOs. They found one, the class of CEOs who thought this was a moral aberration because it exacerbates the problems of income inequality. And then they found other CEOs who said, we're going to take our money and basically buy back shares and increase dividends, not put it into immediate wage hikes and development. Now, there are some companies, AT&T and others, who've promised to to make investments. And it's clear investments over time will take place uh, if you from this uh, corporate tax break. The question is, how long does that take? And does it then accrue to the benefit of people in the middle class? You have to work for one of those companies. Those companies have to choose to hire people instead of putting in machines. If you look at the carrier example, uh, candidate Trump put a lot of pressure on the company to keep jobs in America. Those jobs have not materialized in the way he said they would. So the promise of this economic rollout that's going to help the middle class is under some considerable debate. The bill could have been formulated in a different way. So, I mean, all of that, I sign on to all of that. I also feel like this has been such a discouraging week, month. I can't even figure out the time period in the sense that all of this is happening in Washington, where it's clear that this is being driven by fear of donors, fear of Republican donors, fear of the kind of performance of needing a win. I mean, we really are in an episode of Veep in that sense. And against a backdrop of President Trump behaving in an unhinged way. You know, he's like tweeting crazy lying videos that are prejudiced against Muslims. I mean, who can even like he's been attacking the press. Just this stuff, this like lying, fake, destructive, tearing away at, you know, basic norms of our democracy. And none of that is going to matter, even to the supposed, you know, grown ups like Corker and Flake and McCain. I expect them all to just line up and vote for this bill. And I it it just it just makes me really fearful, honestly, for what's going to happen next. Because, look, you can undo a bill, but you can't what all of the things that they're allowing in the name of getting this win, what they're standing for. It's very hard to undo the message that is sending about, you know, what America is, what our values are. Like if I I just people abroad just must be aghast. But actually, Emily, I, I agree with the people abroad being aghast and and I don't actually don't even think your point that you can undo it is is right. 
that because yeah. of also the way that the taxes have become a one-way ratchet for the Republican Party, it, it's not as if you pull the tax code, tax uh, corporate tax rate down to 20%, that a fiscally sound uh, bipartisan uh, uh, majority, majority of a majority is going to then get it back up to 26%. That's never going to happen. They will never, Republicans will never vote for a tax hike that will raise that rate to 25%. It's, it's stuck at 20. I mean, maybe it'll go lower. So if you want to get more revenue, you're going to have to find it from some other means that Republicans are not going to be ever going to endorse. And the way the legislature is structured, I don't see majority Democratic veto-proof majority or filibuster-proof majority for both houses of Congress with a president coming anytime soon. I mean, I I wish there would. Um, I agree. And yet, like, as we welcome with open arms an, another version of the Gilded Age, all these people who feel so screwed over across the country who voted for Trump, like, wh- how much do they put up with? Like, when you're I, getting the I, tiny breadcrumbs on the table left from, like, the big meal that the rich people just ate, like, how, I, it just doesn't seem yeah, so look, can, I ask you, can I ask you, this is a question, John, which you're yeah. going to answer, which is the tax bill is polls unpopu- as being unpopular, yes. but is it actually no. unpopular? It First of all, it's quite unpopular. Uh, the tax bill, it's quite popular in Republican ranks. And we've basically moved to a base-only presidency and a base-only system of government. So within the Republican ranks, it's quite popular. The president's very popular. The only people who aren't popular are Republican leaders. So this will help them with their base, and that's what matters now. In terms of the, the Trump base, the Trump supporters that I've talked to have two views. One, they believe in the underlying argument of the president and the and the people who put forward to this bill, which is, A, the market is going up, so that's good. The economy is healthy, which we should note is an extraordinary uh, shift from what happened during the campaign. I mean, the president demonized Goldman Sachs, demonized Wall Street. Wall Street is now the thing he and and his supporters use as, well, he particularly use as the sign that he's doing right by the country. So it's that's basically just a, as if the stock market is the economy. Right, Sorry, exactly. And that's after running a campaign in which Goldman Sachs and Lloyd Blankfein, <laughs> the chairman of Goldman Sachs, were used as the boogeyman. So that's just kind of an extraordinary pass and thing to... But basically, people, uh, there is a booster rooting, you know, interest in this, which is basically they want their guy to win, and any win is a win. Uh, those in the upper income or those in the kind of the suburban Republican voter uh, may very well see share prices increase, and uh, I mean, may benefit from this in ways that will will make it popular. They'll be happier. The people who might not benefit directly, nevertheless, like it because it's a win for their team. And so, I think um, uh, you could imagine. I'm not saying that's the way it will work out, but you could imagine it becoming a, a lot more popular once it uh, passes. Plus, you could also imagine the consequences coming to pass. Because they will in a way that does not clearly lead to a rejection. It'll be down the line. It'll be someone else picking up the garbage. It'll probably be the Democrats like shoveling out the shit. And that also just like, oh, man, it's just like. Uh, yeah, it really feels to me like we are in decline. I mean, we've had other moments of that, but this legislation feels like such a scam on a different level. So go ahead. One of the key points of the president's campaign was that the swamp was uh, occupied by two kinds of people, special interests and big money donors who treated the members of Congress like puppets in all of the conversation about how this has to be passed because donors want it. It's an it's an affirmation of that puppet puppeteer relationship that the president said was 
so awful and that he was going to change in Washington. So just in terms of the ways in which you can argue about the actual policy of this, but in terms of the ways in which this runs counter to what people were being told and being promised, that would be another thing I'd put in that category. And yet they're not like rising up in protest, right? If you know, if, who, if Trump's right, th- that's the part of it that I just who's find, not rising like, up in protest? The the voters who, who wanted the yeah, swamp drained, the populists. Like this is not conservative populism. This bill, like where, why aren't where is that sense of like, wait, we're not getting what we were promised, and we're going to hold you accountable when Trump says black is white and white is black? Or, like it, I feel like we're turning into a country of sheep. Well, it's that I think that. So much of what uh, conservatism is or Trump Trumpianism is, is just trying to own liberals. It's like getting a win and owning liberals. And so it doesn't really matter how you get it. It's that they're not. And so Trump's going to get a win. And so that's more important than whatever substance is actually. Yeah. It. And I would just say I would separate that from conservatives because there are. A straight, you know, a stratification here of those who think this is bad conservative right. economic policy, and then others who think, right. well, it's right. Right. it's right. mediocre policy, but better than you know. They want to see corporate tax cuts for defensible economic. John, policy. let's and it is defensible. Corporate tax cuts are defensible. Let's just like make that clear. It's right. this level at the cost of everything else. Okay. And the for estate, the trade offs, yeah. the estate tax shit yes. just makes me is not defensible. That is just yes. absolutely undefensible. It is so wrong. But let's talk for a second, John, about everything else that is piling up. Because in addition to this tax bill, we have debt ceiling crisis approaching. We have the children's health care plan that needs to be renewed, the Earth and Iran sanctions that the Senate needs to consider. There's DACA. There's supposed to be a sort of a DACA fix that's supposed to be considered. And we had uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi pulling out of a meeting with the president this week uh, after the president tweeted that he, there was no deal to be done with Democrats. This tax bill um, can pass just uh, – oh, and also the, the PAYGO effects of mm-hmm. of this tax bill, which means that under PAYGO, you're going to have to take significant amount out of Medicare next year if you want to abide by the PAYGO rules, which would happen automatically. So is th- – this bill can pass under reconciliation with 50 votes in the Senate. None of the other stuff can. What – does that the rest of the legislative landscape look like? It looks pretty bleak. I mean, I think the debt ceiling can be put off until next year through, quote unquote, extraordinary measures. Um, so it's just so you might get some continuing resolutions. Um, but I don't know. And as far as uh, I think DACA, they can wait till next year. They were it March was t- 5th. Yeah, it was tied to government funding because it was a way in which um, – Democrats could use the leverage of keeping the, the government funded to get what they wanted on DACA. I don't. Um, and then on Iran, that is the big uh, that is the big question. Secretary Tillerson, who was against uh, pulling out of the deal, has lost even more favor with the president. Uh, but it's really this is all on Congress, uh, and I don't know how they get it done. There's just like. They only got – I don't know how many more legislative days they've got in the year, but not many. The tax question is going to take us right up to the deadline. And the the deadline for CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance, which covers about 9 million children, has already passed. Um, the deadline's passed. And states passed. are it's sending just, out notices that right. they're going to be canceling coverage. They're running out of money. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how it gets – I don't know how it get, gets handled. Oh, and by the way, we haven't even talked about the – there's a FISA court uh, renewal that has to take place too, Emily, I think. Yeah, um, that's right. Another Section, thing by the end of the yeah. end of the year. Oh, my God. Yep. 
We have a Slate Plus segment for you, dear listeners, who are Slate Plus members today. That Slate Plus segment is uh, pegged to the the royal engagement of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Does the United States need a royal family? Would we be, be better off? Would our politics be better if we had a royal family? If you are interested in hearing discussions like that or other Slate Plus segments, go to slate.com slash gabfest plus to sign up. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Roy Moore is headed for victory in the Alabama special Senate race. He will survive one of the most appalling sex scandals in political history. His creepy, creepy criminal predatory behavior alleged towards teenage girls, including assaults and threats alleged. He will skate because time has passed since those allegations passed, because Alabama really doesn't want to elect a Democrat, because they're uh, have been so many new harassment cases to muddy the waters every day, yet another one, because of democratic perceived hypocrisy that has given cover to more with the unwillingness of Al Franken to step down or of John Conyers to step down. I'm just going to note that I disagree with the thesis that that okay. has a bearing on whether Moore gets elected, even though I don't defend the, what the Democrats are doing, especially with Conyers. Oh, I think it, it gives cover. Note. I think it gives cover. Um, Whatever. But, People are, I can't imagine that's like what really matters in Alabama. Go ahead. Anyway, there's one final piece of it, which is came news early this week of a bizarre attempt to discredit the media and discredit the allegations against Moore an attempt to sting the Washington Post, the paper that had uncovered and reported these allegations against Moore and has done so much incredible journalism over the last year, uh, as has the New York Times, as has many other places, as have many other places. Um, a woman named Jamie Phillips, apparently working for James O'Keefe's project Veritas, attempted to lure the Post into publishing her made-up story of getting impregnated by Moore at age 15 and then getting an abortion, I think paid for by Moore. The Post saw through her ruse, turned the tables on her, and revealed the scam. It was extremely satisfying, I think, as journalists. We all found that extremely satisfying to see great journalists being careful and reasoning and careful what they're doing and showing how assiduously they work and, and how honestly they work. In fact, it showed exactly the opposite of what O'Keefe was attempting to show, which is that journalists are fast and loose and have a dishonest bias towards, towards going after conservatives. But... Emily, do you want to finish the sentence? Finish the but. I mean, did, was but. this was this pure vindication? I mean, obviously, it's pure vindication for the Post and its reporters and and showing what a disgrace O'Keefe is. But you know, does that mean that now the journalism is is free and easy and and everyone agrees that the Washington Post is great? I think not. Sadly, I mean, absolutely, the Washington Post like gets many points and roses for the way they handled this, and I had the feeling like I was watching a Spotlight episode as I was reading and watching the videos on this. I should say Spotlight sequel, not episodes. It's a movie, not a television show. But first of all, there is not going to be anything like consensus that it, the Washington Post triumphed. You know, O'Keefe spins everything as a victory. Back to like our theme of wins for the sake of wins. I'm sure that his 
base, which is connected to Trump's base, will celebrate this and somehow cast him as the hero. And the way in which the country is just as polarized and partisan and divided over media as it is over politicians is, you know, new, not like brand new, not like Fox News just appeared. But this degree of mistrust is a new thing. And there are so many manifestations of it. So one thing I've been noticing, and I wonder if you guys picked this up too. So now when the Post or the Times or NBC or CNN or whatever mainstream media outlet is writing a critical or just like a, you know, scrutinizing story about some part of the government, the spokesperson for the EPA or the FDA or the whoever comes back with, I'm not answering your question because the New York Times or the Washington Post, fill in the blank, is so unfair to us. What you're doing is biased. It's not an engagement with the substance of the critique. It's merely a pillaring of the media outlet. And it seems to be, like, successful enough that it keeps getting repeated over and over again. I just see James O'Keefe as, like, an extreme version of that same impulse and phenomenon. And then the second thing about this is, like, this is just going to keep happening. And I imagine myself in this situation. Now, I know how to do my job, and I would like to think I wouldn't fall for some false story. And one thing that is kind of crazy is how little cover Jamie Phillips had. Like, once they were on to her, she had really nothing to fall back on. She was clearly not really well-prepared or skilled. All of that said, you know, the idea that, like, every person you talk to could be trying to, like, undermine your news organization and you can't just assume that there's, like, basic goodwill when strangers ask you questions. Like, that's bad for all of us to have to be. I am not someone who goes through life suspicious. It's just not my way of being. And um, I mean, I'm on my guard more than I was before. But I, that is not – I don't think that's good. Right. Yeah. It, uh, I would just like to – Stephanie McCrumman, who, who did the interview, it was great just watching her. It's just – Watching her yep. do the interview because you can't do an interview like that unless you've done hundreds of interviews before just quietly, patiently doing your work the right way. So that's just a it's just a good thing to see whether it's a reporter or a person, you know, cutting uh, down an old tree. It's a it's a joy to watch somebody do their job well. I think everything you've said is right, Emily. I think you're not as bad as you say, which is to say <laughs> you are a trusting person. But when it comes to your having talked through many stories with you. Uh, your professional instincts about um, making sure you talk to everyone and treat things the way you're supposed to is actually pretty hardwired. Wait, I agree. Like once I know I'm doing my job, I do my job. What scares me is the cat. Like the it turns out that Jamie Phillips was going to all these like drinks events with Washington Post reporters and just like hanging out with them. And, you know, other people are someone's talking to a Washington Post reporter in a bar and trying to get like it. It's that that's the what I'm talking about. Although it's, it's funny that you're fair game at any moment. What this requires, of course, is a misunderstanding and misapprehension of what it is that we do and what it mm -hmm. is that we think. So it's very funny to watch Adam Entos, so the formerly of the Washington Post, um, saying basically there might be nothing to this Russia story. Like, yeah. we, we right. don't know. We're, we're just gathering. We don't know. We're looking into right. it. It might be a total nothing, which is, of course, the case. <laughs> and yet that's used as some sort of great admission 
um, which misunderstands the idea um, that you report and report and report and then you might find nothing at the end, but you've got to report it thoroughly in order to affirm that final conclusion. The reporting of it doesn't presuppose that you know what the conclusion is, but they go, they have gone in and into this and also frame it as if merely asking the question embeds in it an answer. One of the things that is so dishonest about O'Keefe, O'Keefe posits himself, presents himself as a, a vindicator of truth, as a person who's ferreting out the bias and proving the the bias. And so if you were if you were an actually honest arbiter in that way, you attempt this sting, the sting fails utterly. The reporters reveal themselves to be ethical, honest, careful, not not out for uh, you know, not out for partisan victory. And and then you you if you were an honest person at that moment, you James O'Keefe say, here's an we thought there was media bias, we attempted to uncover it. It was not revealed to be that so. So we, we're moving on. And the, the fact that, that O'Keefe refuses to do that and instead tries to claim victory and tries to, sh- you know, like assert that the post is, is corrupt and wrong just shows how utterly corrupted to the core, how rotten to the core his project is. One of the things that is actually worrisome, though, is that when you look at who's able to do this kind of work that the post is doing these days, you know, the Post has Jeff Bezos bankrolling them to hundreds. You know, he has he has a hundred billion dollars or whatever it is that he can afford to lose on whatever he wants to lose on the New York Times. You have a public service minded uh, ownership, but media ownership in general is not like the, the work that the Post is doing is very expensive and very difficult, not necessarily profitable. Uh, not every not every entity is going to have people who are as good as the post and is going to be as, as ethical as the post reporters are. And also, um, not everyone's going to be able to withstand these pressures. So it's that's pretty worrisome. Well, and there's sort of two parts of that that are worrisome. There are like the trunks of the world, these like cookie cutter, cost cutting corporations that come in and gut local newspapers and make them mediocre. And then there's the situation we're in that this essential part of our democracy is at the whim of of some very a, a handful, I don't know, a small number of very wealthy people who happen to believe in this value. And like if they're gone, then what happens? I mean that we're increasingly in that right. bewildering world in which very, very rich people are driving a lot of important aspects are just like not deeply grounded. And again, it goes back to our first topic and inequality. The I, What do you guys think is the long-term consequence of the nihilistic approach to media that some folks on the right and even some folks on the left, but mostly on the right, are promoting? This idea that you cannot, can never trust the media. The media is always a tool of one partisan institution or another, one partisan oh, group or another. That, that was a relatively small problem in American life. 15 years ago, and it's become an enormous problem. Well, I think it's always been as virulent. I mean, in terms of just the attitude, it's as virulent on the left as it is on the right. The right has turned it into an operational strategy and has done more with that point of view. But I mean, I guess it just in terms of where it feels like it lives to me just as, as uh, passionately on the left as the right. I, what I wonder is what kind of a moment we're really in. I mean, clearly the president cares about his base and about that direct communication message through social media and through um, 
certain Fox hosts, you know, presidents in the past at least made some effort to kind of capture the larger part of the country. But since the so much of the news is driven by the White House and by this president, it is we are focused on that narrow casting communication. But the president still has a 37 percent approval rating. Even if the polls are wildly wrong, the majority of Americans don't approve of what he's doing and they don't approve of uh, uh, both broad sense, but also specifically. I don't really know where where the country is right now. Certainly the people who are most vocal in politics right now, uh, you know, have it's completely atomized. I mean, I don't think have they... you guys had John, have you had this happen to you? This is something that's happened to me a few times in the last, I don't know, six months, nine months, where I'll be talking to someone who's not political at all, like doesn't follow news. I have no idea how they vote. Um, and I'll tell them they'll ask me what I'm working on. And I'll start telling them about a story and they'll say, oh, that's really interesting. Will you send that to me or they'll go find it and they'll come back and want to talk more. And then they'll say, can you send me the other things you're writing? Because I don't know what to trust. But now that I've met you, like, I want to read what you are writing. And I mean, I guess it's a compliment, but I also think it's nuts. The idea that like my the fact that you like had a conversation with me somehow means that like I deserve it's like this. Well, it's like we're back in like a a town square and people are talking to each other personally because they don't know who to trust because, oh, what's coming in over my Facebook feed? I have no idea where any of it's coming from, as opposed to like here are institutions, you know, and sometimes I'll try to gently say like, well, I work for The New York Times and you could read other things in the New York Times. And they'll and I've had people back away from that idea. Like, well, no, I don't know what to trust, like in any particular mainstream media outlet, but I want to read what it's just yeah, I, I think it's so not a good sign. You know, well it is a, <laughs> I have had that happen. It it often happens when people write some rage tweet or a horrible email. Um like 90% of the times if you respond, they're like, oh, I didn't realize there was a human there. But like a lot of that rage that people feel or lack of trust that people feel is not the result of the left or the right demonizing us. Like we in, you know, in the press have done a lot and do it every damn day. I mean, part of the problem is we are defined by the least among us. So, um, uh, you know, no so we are defined basically by you're walking through an airport <clears throat> and you see a cable channel running. You know, what is just either an inane conversation or calling out breaking news that has been, you know, something that broke two days ago and was really not even breaking news in the first place. And people think I'm being punked. I'm being tricked. I'm this is dishonest. Yes. And the headlines that you read online, you think this is a dishonest business. And so I I see how it's super easy to come to the view. And then, by the way, journalism's hard. Sometimes you make mistakes. And so now that everything is framed through this basically operational dishonesty, then natural mistakes, which are the result of the fact that we cover things that are moving pictures, gets fed into that. And so errors of humanity get framed as uh, acts of malice. So... I agree that we are often our own worst enemy, but I don't accept the premise that you can't find incredibly oh. painstaking. I mean, oh right? my god, like, yes, every so day. It's a choice. Like, sure. turn off the television. Sure. I mean, I don't sure. mean to sound sure, sure. Like no, no, preachy, I co- no, 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 absolutely right. I mean, that's again why I was praising the quiet, um, you know, work on the on the Project Veritas video because that's what goes on all the time. In addition to what you're ta- to, to what I talked about earlier, I, I, I agree with you. We don't want to throw the baby with the bathwater bath here. 
Can I say one other thing, David, in response to your question, like, what's the where does this lead? You know, if the fever breaks, then like we go back to being a country in which there are some accepted shared premise of truth. But it, it's hard to see how that happens now that we're on this yeah. road. And this is one area where I find Masha Gessen like seeming pretty prescient. And I have disagreements with some of the things she says, but she talks about Putin's disinformation campaign in Russia and the way in which there is no way in Russia to know what's true or not because state propaganda has been so successful at insinuating itself. And I feel like we are moving into that realm and we are that means that we are giving away this m- most important um aspect, again, of our democracy, which is like some idea that we can believe what the government is telling us, that we think we know what is true and we have a shared set of facts. Yeah. And I want to actually add on to that. That's the, that was the point I wanted to get to, too, Emily, which is that that compounding this sort of disagree, this sort of partisan disagreement about what media is true and people's distrust of media is the multiplying effect of a government which is now no longer committed or appears to not be committed to honest uh, sharing of information, mm-hmm. of open access to data, of of treating data as an important tool, important nonpartisan tool to knowing about the world. And I think we are going to learn one of the incredible greatest strengths of the United States over the past many years from the development of the census, from the, de- the, the, the patent office, National Institutes of Standards and Technology, is the creation of monumental amounts of trustworthy data that people could use for business, for trade, for uh, research purposes, uh, just, you know, for social science purposes. And we are abandoning that. And it's going to be absolutely devastating. We were going to create, first of all, your point, ambiguity, a lack of certainty that people feel, but also just, I mean, a less uh, knowledgeable, less um, informed public. And that's catastrophic because that's our greatest strength is an informed public. Although I think the hunger for that information does, I think we're, I think we're, that we have pen, pendulum uh, opportunities here, which is that that will happen, what you describe, and then there will be a rush back to expertise. Uh, Maybe. <laughs> Let's see what shape yeah. we're in by but the time I, that uh, rush might be actually looked for. But this is why I want to, I feel like we should uh, basically make everybody take logic for several years in high school as a national. <laughs> Um, because, because it was very would, popular. Proposal. I know exactly. People are going to rush to this idea because the more things are argued, uh, argued in social media and the more people have to hunt for actual who understand how something's being framed in a way or, uh, uh, what good journalism looks like. They will, as you say, Emily, either turn off the television or move quickly past the, the stupidity. You know, it's like the old days when you used to walk through the airport uh, and you were, uh, they were. You're left. always walking through the airport. I know, well, I am. <laughs> he is. Well, no, it's you true. know, when they used to solicit. <laughs> that must be so rotten. You, they used to solicit you, you know, people would solicit you when you walk through the airport before it used to be, uh, before, and now you can't. But, before and, and you just learn to ignore the 50 solicitations from, um, from whatever, you know, a good or scam groups that were trying to solicit you and then you walk to your destination. That's what you basically have to learn to do as a media consumer. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs) 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Carpenter versus the United States. This is a big digital privacy case we have talked about before. Emily, it was argued this week at the Supreme Court. Update us. Tell us about it. Why is it important? Timothy Carpenter is accused of being part of a gang of robbers that committed a string of robberies. And there's a central um, delicious irony in this case, which was that the robbery at the center of this constitutional challenge was Radio Shack, and they stole a bunch of phones. So they stole a bunch of phones. The cops start investigating. They decide they want the cell phone tower records for Carpenter. They think he's one of the masterminds of this robbery plot, though it wasn't particularly well executed. So mastermind's not really the word, but like, you know, one of the leaders. And they get the records from the cell phone towers, and they show basically everything about Timothy Carpenter's movements over 127 days. It's like almost 13,000 data points about his location. And the police got all this information without a traditional warrant where you have to show probable cause for wanting this information. And then when Carpenter was convicted, this cell phone tower location data was part of the government's evidence against him because it showed that he was very near some of the robbery places around the time they were taking place. There was also evidence against Carpenter from witnesses of the robberies and some of the people, some of the robbers um, flipped and turned on him. So he is challenging his conviction on the grounds that the government should have gotten a traditional probable cause warrant. What the government got instead was permission to get these records through what's called the Stored Communications Act. And this is a law that Congress passed that set a lower threshold for getting cell location data or other kinds of digital data. All the um, prosecutors have to show is that they have a reasonable belief that the records will be relevant to their investigation. So the key question before the Supreme Court is, when you're talking about the kind of data that can track us 24-7, that is essentially surveillance data, does the probable cause standard from the Constitution apply? This is the standard in the Fourth Amendment that determines whether something is a reasonable or unreasonable search. Or did Congress step in and by setting this lower standard, essentially like, you know, replace the Fourth Amendment? And was that a considered judgment that Congress should be able to make? And then, of course, like the backdrop for this case is in a world in which there is the potential for the government to know so much about us from our digital breadcrumb trail we're leaving behind. Do, do we need to like make sure that this probable cause standard is all the more adhered to in light of the potential privacy violations? And the 1970s cases that the Supreme Court decided where they gave prosecutors access without showing probable cause to all the numbers you dial on your landline – like, does that even apply anymore? The justification for that standard was that those are business records. So they were like from a third party. It's not the same as asking you to turn over your own data because you've consented to make this record with the phone company. And so the Supreme Court this week, most of the justices were wrestling with the relevance of that precedent. All right. I have a couple of questions. Number one, when they got the records, did they get it off the phone or did they get it from the phone company? From the phone companies. Okay. If they had gotten it from the phone, it would have been illegal. They would have had to show probable cause. We already have a decision from 2014 finding that. And it does seem 
that the justices are fully aware that the the nature of the modern phone is very different from any object that's existed before in the sense that it is ubiquitous. It is constantly gathering and collecting and disseminating data, and it is a necessary condition of modern life, right? They seem aware of all of those facts. Yeah, and basically seven of the nine of them were skeptical of the government's position here. I mean, that doesn't mean it'll be a seven to two decision, but there were seven justices, really everyone except for Alito and Kennedy seemed worried about the like big brother aspect of this. What, the, the distinction that I kind of came to, and I don't know whether this has been dis- discussed, Emily, is that it seems like if you do something that you are doing actively with your phone, if it is, it is an affirmative thing, that an action you take, if you make a phone call at a particular place at a particular time and you that phone call pings a cell tower where you've done it or you've uploaded a photo at that moment of a at a place at a time, that that's a record that the government should have access to. The thing that concerns me is the idea that all of the times when you aren't doing anything but where your phone is still in communication is checking in, where it's passive, like where the phone is doing things passively, that stuff seems should not be gettable. And why do you feel like that's the key distinction? Because if you are actively doing something, if you've chosen, I'm I'm out here, uh, I'm about to rob this, this cell phone store and I'm making a call to my collaborators, when you make that phone call, I feel like you are creating a record that isn't that that you're that's an action where you're using. Yes, it's a tool that you have to carry with you all the time. But it's the fact that you have chosen to make a call at that location reveals you. And so that that ought to be a record. But where but my understanding was that that these guys are tracking that 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 what they're collecting is not simply when you make a phone call, but also it's just where you're physically where you are where you are all the time because your phone is constantly sort of checking in off towers, right? Yeah, you're right. I mean, I guess, so the way this came up, the way this arises in this case most directly is that the law that's developed around the Fourth Amendment is based on what's called your reasonable expectation of privacy, mostly. It's like, does the normal person walking around expect this to be something that's closely held, that the government can't get without probable cause. That's not the whole test, but it's essentially most of it at this point. And so there was this conversation. It's like, well, do people know that they're being, um, their movements are being tracked all the time or do they not know? And I guess the wrinkle you're adding is like, maybe, well, I think people do know when they upload a photo or make a call that that is going to be recorded. And so it's on them to shield their movements if they want to. Kennedy seemed to think that all of us know all the time that we're walking around with these little tracking devices. He didn't seem to think there was a reasonable expectation of privacy. He made this little joke like, well, I know that, so everyone must know that. I find this whole line of thinking to be kind of odd. Like, right. I don't really care. First of all, like, who knows what most people know about how their phones work? I don't right. care. I just care about whether we think it's a good idea or not. And the fundamental thing to me about this case that to me makes it an easy case is it is not that hard for prosecutors to show probable cause and to get warrants. When prosecutors ask for search warrants, they almost always receive them from the judge. This is not like some big bar. It sounds to me like there was plenty of evidence against Timothy Carpenter. Like for sure they would have gotten a warrant. And given the potential for this like enormous amount of surveillance, which is seems like it's 
limitless. Why wouldn't we stick to this standard? Like this seems to be one moment in which the framers got it right and the law as it developed absent these questions about technology is only more relevant now. So I just don't understand why it is such a big deal to just be like, you know what, let's let's have probable cause. But why isn't that? I'm sorry, not to make it all about me. Why isn't my passive active distinction the real distinction? It, well, when, it could be if you think that's the most important thing. But like, but again, I'm I'm not convinced because do you think that like people know when they're doing? Well, something I don't. I agree with they, you that it's not that actually that that knowledge about that knowledge question is not actually that important. We all know that we're being tracked all the time. That doesn't I'm mean not that, sure we do. But who cares? But that doesn't. Anyway. That's. Sh- but that shouldn't be the standard of whether the government can look at every bit of information about you. I think to me the standard is: Have you done something in the world? Like, have you, you know, have you, have you revealed yourself to the world at that moment when you're just simply walking around doing your business and you happen to be carrying a phone with you? That to me is not you're you are a totally private person at that moment. No one should know anything about you. You should be able to go anywhere and do anything. And the phone is something you have to carry as a matter of utility. It's like a heartbeat at this point. But when you actively use the object to convey information, to convey something to check in on the world that seems to me like okay i am now revealing myself to the world and that that is a that's a fact that ought to be knowable the kind of passive information that you're giving off or that that is being collected about you seems to me should never be known well i don't know maybe your reasoning as like the innocent person who has nothing to hide but i feel like what i care about is what does the government have to do to get that. everything I did for the last hundred and twenty-seven right. no, days? Yeah. Yes, no, I like, totally I agree want... with the warrant. No, I agree with you about the warrant. Yeah, sorry, yeah. I agree. Wait, I agree but are you saying it should be off limit no matter what? The I passive kind of think the passive stuff. collection should be oh, off limits no matter what. But so take that out of the technology. So if your passive activity not related to the crime is captured on a CCTV, should that right. be inadmissible? Um, under the same rules. Well, I think, okay, so if you pass a person on the street. Like, right, and they see you. They see you. That's, and they that, can identify yeah. where you were. Right? This yeah. came up in argument, like, is the camera just a witness? Is the cell phone tower just a witness? The, yeah. the government's lawyer made that argument that essentially the cell phone tower is like a person, oh, has should be treated as a witness. And of course we don't ask, like, is there probable cause before we question witnesses? I find that to be horrifying <laughs> because it treats like, you know, the the automated potential yeah. of surveillance as the same as human observation. Right. And, it, and, and, and the fact is that in a modern society, by that standard, then we are con- – every one of us is constantly witnessed every second. Where, and that, that's totally unreasonable. The government should get to know that. I think that the camera, the security camera one is an interesting case because it does require effort, at least at this point, to track down who are you, who – are you, was that you there? Right. And so so I think that the camera can count as a witness in a way your own phone, which you own, which they know you own, shouldn't count. Is there any well, way your which... own phone doesn't count? It's right. We know that. Because it's self Well, but it's your phone. But it's your phone talking to yeah, well, your own phone revealing question. you, your own phone exposing you. Yes. And are you – I mean the way the court was conceptualizing this in line with their past cases, are you helping to create these records? Chief Justice Roberts said that. If you're making the record with the phone company, is it really just a third-party piece of information? And because you've you've 
engaged in the contract with the phone company, you're making it with the phone company. Right. That was the comeback. I, I can't remember if it was Alito or someone was like, well, you're voluntarily walking around with this phone, which I find that also to be right. such an artificial and wooden notion of how we all use our phones. Like we don't have very much of a choice. Well, it's you could, hard you could to turn it. You could life. turn off. You could turn, turn it off, off all the time. Yeah. Or turn off the set, whatever, turn off cellular data or turn off something. I didn't. But maybe it's still pinging for all the, the fuck I know. Maybe yeah. it's still right. pinging. Right. It's always pinging. Some of it's your ask you permission, <laughs> but some of them I think don't. I think I, they just run in the no background. No means no, Emily. Right. No means no. I feel like I turn it Thanks. off. Never mind. Emily, you can get one last word. Is this uh, who's going to win? Is this digital privacy I will think- triumph? Uh, I think yes. I think the court, you know, there's the the case we've been talking about, Riley versus California, that is in the direction of caution in terms of opening us up to all this um, eavesdropping. And then there's the GPS case from a couple of years earlier where the government wasn't allowed to put, I think, a 30-day GPS on a car that was going to track all the time. One weird thing that happened at oral argument was Neil Gorsuch had some idea this was about property rights, um, <laughs> which seemed sort of uh, like a strange conceptualization. But I guess it'll be interesting to see what he writes. Uh, I don't I think that the government is going to lose to some degree. There is an interesting question about Congress stepping in. I'm, <laughs> I'm interested in that. Like the legis- the idea that it could Congress essentially override this part of the Fourth Amendment. I mean, that's not really how it's supposed to work because the Constitution <laughs> is the <laughs> fundamental document. I don't really like that idea. So actually, the more I think about it, the more I think that this, the court should rein in the government here. Let us go to cocktail chatter. When you're sitting around the fire in New Haven, Emily, with a snifter, a goblet, a stein, what will you be chattering about? (laughs) I don't know if I know what a stein. Oh, I guess I can kind of visualize a stein. John's like, please. Um, (laughs) So I'm going to do a double chatter. Um, The first thing I want to chatter about is if... Like me, you are thinking a lot about sexual harassment and where we are and how far we have and have not come. I recommend an interview that Rebecca Traster did on Ezra Klein's show this week. She just did an excellent job of talking about the history and giving context. And there's a lot of um, she's thinking out loud in a way that I thought was like very evocative and resonant for me. And I wanted also to recommend a new book that's coming out in January, but you can order it on Amazon now. It's called Green. It's a novel. It's by Sam Graham Felson. I think it's his first book. And it's about a kid, a white kid at an almost all black school in Jamaica Plains in the 80s, I think. And like what it's like to be that kid and looking at these questions of race and identity through that lens. And it's really stuck with me. It has like some lovely rollicking language and passages in it. And the main character is a 12-year-old, which is a really good age to write from. And it has a kind of honesty about it, I thought, that um, was really appealing. So Green by Sam Graham Felson. I'm sure you'll hear more about in January, but you can get a jump on it by going to buy it now. JD, what is your chatter? Uh, my chatter is uh, some uh, self log rolling, kind of. I, I don't. I feel like I don't do that. Oh much. no, we never do that. Here. Well, I feel like I. I feel like I've, <laughs> I haven't used this chit in a while, but um, not since the Face the Nation diary, which is ages ago. Um, anyway, we did a um, a book. Uh, almost the entire show was about books on Face the Nation this last week. There were two segments. One was with um, Robert Dalek, Ron Chernow, Nancy Kane, and Mark Updegrove about. Um, 
leaders in crisis, presidents. So I recommend the conversation to you, but also all of those books are good. So since we're all authors here, I'm uh, I'm always happy to be um, promoting good authors and good conversation. And it was a nice step out of our current moment. And then I talked to Walter Isaacson about Leonardo da Vinci, which was um, also a conversation I enjoyed. So if you like books, those topics, I recommend that and those authors to you. I listened to your Walter uh, conversation. It was really interesting. So I, I double commend it. My chatter is I've got four chatters. I have four. So, <laughs> so much but the, chatter. But they're all like, really, they're all super short. Like teeth on a short. cold day. Because I just, it, because Thanksgiving weekend is this time when you, if you're like me, you haven't seen movies forever. You get yeah. to catch up on culture or you get to do, you know, do things you haven't done. So I saw two movies and read one book. Uh, and also then I have a log rolling. So but the two movies I saw, which I would recommend highly to everybody, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, Francis McDormand, amazing, strange, brilliant movie about a woman who has lost her daughter to a terrible crime and the small town in which she is sort of raising a ruckus about that incredible movie. Woody Harrelson just is mesmerizingly great in that. And second movie, Wonder, based on the... Uh, the I can't remember the author's name, but the book of the same name, Wonder. R.J. Palacio. R.J. Palacio. The movie. That's her pen name. Movie is just just so moving. I've never cried as much in a movie. It's beautiful, and um, Julia Roberts puts everybody else, all other all other actors in America, to shame. She's the most winning person probably on the planet. As an oh my actress. god, I'm so depressed that that's your conception of actressdom. That Julia Roberts is your favorite person. She, she's not the greatest actress. She is, but she is a person who conveys charm and warmth and empathy. Uh, she's amazing. She, there's a certain kind of role, like the America's Sweetheart role. No one have, has ever, people have come for that role. She, she remains the queen. She's just like pushed them down the hill. <laughs> as, as all American sweethearts do. It's, yeah. uh... Sandra Bullock is like <laughs> lying in a heap at the bottom not, I'm not saying she's the best actress in the world. I don't think that's true. I think but there's a certain kind of embodiment of warmth that she is just amazing at. And that movie is great. Um, and then a, a book, Version Control by Dexter Palmer. I don't know why no one has talked about this book as a – this book is like a John, if Jonathan Franzen wrote sci-fi. And it's an amazing book. It's a set in the sort of a near future where um, – Someone is trying to develop a time machine and there's all kinds of other strange things that are happening in the world. And it's just a portrait of a half a dozen people in this world. And it's a brilliant book. So version control by Dexter Palmer. If you like, if you like slightly dystopic sci-fi and also like I'm Jonathan Franzen. I'm looking at it on the uh, situation. Sounds here. like the best Hanukkah present. It's a great Hanukkah present. People. Actually, no. You know what the best Hanukkah present is? My fourth one. <laughs> the, 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 the Atlas Obscura book. Oh, Why, it's you know, a log roll. It's a log oh, roll. It is the best gift. You're if you, leading up to it. For the joyful nerds in your life, Atlas Obscura, the Atlas Obscura book, it is an you know, it was much gifted last year by many people. But if you didn't get a chance to gift it, it is a book that everybody loves eight to 88 it is just filled with wonder and beauty and people will leaf through it and they will adore it so get the atlas obscure book and that is our show for today our log rolly show for today emily didn't log roll anything emily has nothing to sell do i have like a credit Can you, would you like to log roll something <laughs> Emily? no i really don't sure. your yale class you need signups uh 
That's no? not my job. No. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> New York people should buy New York Times Magazine subscriptions, but they can't can't get the New they York Times. They can buy New York Times subscriptions, but I am not log rolling for my employer. No. All right. People should make their own choices about what they buy. That is our show for today. The Political Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, who also never log rolls. Our researcher is Izzy Road, who I, if Izzy, hey, if you have something to log roll, Izzy, let us know. We'll log roll for it next week. You should subscribe to the GabFest, an Apple podcast or anywhere where you listen. Please subscribe. It really helps us when you subscribe and also when you rate us and review us. So do that. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. And for some of you, we'll see you in Boston at our live show in uh, the Wilbur Theater next Wednesday. Mm. Tickets at slate.com slash live. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.